Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to Coindesk's Women Who Web 3 podcast, your weekly podcast celebrating women supporting women investing in women, and bridging the gender gap in wealth through Web3. What gets you up in the morning? What motivates you and drives you? Two of the reasons that are very near and dear to my heart is that Web3 needed more women, and it was just not user-friendly. Each week, we'll be learning from powerful women, sharing their insights on topics. I guess everybody was shocked that I left Amazon to go to a startup. There was an article that was published, I think it was in the New York Times, and we ended up getting, I don't know, 1,500 job applicants. And we have how-tos from founders and builders who have been there and done that. And Cam's, when we looked at them, only 2% were women. He was a huge fan of my show, and he was like a little bit starstruck when he was asked to be on the show. I had this sinking feeling because I was like, oh boy, he's not going to like me after this interview because I had all of these tough questions for him. Healing sessions to give you the power to overcome imposter syndrome and everything you need to level up in your crypto journey. The soulful expression that I was seeing and how people were authentically exuding their true self. At the end of each podcast, stick around for some zen with a relaxing meditation to center you after absorbing all the stories and the knowledge. Remember, always look to the sky above, earth below, and the fire within. Hi, and welcome to Women Who Web 3. I'm your host, Cams, and on today's show, we're talking about the future of crypto and DeFi designing an equitable Web3 space and creating more female CEOs. I wanted to talk a little bit about some research I just recently found, which was super interesting. BlockFi, a global crypto financial services company, launched a research series focused on understanding changing consumer sentiment towards crypto, investing, and other related topics. One of their most recent surveys conducted among 1,075 female identifying Americans between the ages of 18 and 65, and assuming these women were from the United States since North or South America are not referenced, published October 2022, found that one in 10 women chose crypto as their very first investment. However, 29% of women surveyed say they were likely to purchase cryptocurrencies in the next year, despite 50% of them believing that Bitcoin prices will actually go up in the next five years, which doesn't quite make sense. 
And then they also reported an interesting finding that only 21% of women felt welcome in the crypto community. However, 52% of those women indicated a lack of knowledge around the community rather than it being seen as unwelcoming. Here today, we have Sheila Warren, the inaugural CEO of the Crypto Council for Innovation, the premier global alliance advancing crypto innovation worldwide. She co-hosts Money Reimagined, a popular CoinDesk podcast, and is an advisor to the Filecoin Foundation for the Decentralized Web and the NEAR Foundation. She also serves on the steering committee of the DeFi Education Fund and is an early stage investor across the Web3 ecosystem. Previously, Sheila founded the blockchain and digital assets team at the World Economic Forum, a major international and non-governmental organization committed to improving the state of the world, where she served as a member of the executive committee. As the deputy global head of the Forum Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution, she oversaw strategy across 16 countries to advance the adoption of new technologies in the global public interest. Sheila graduated from Harvard College, earned her Juris Doctorate at Harvard Law School, and began her career as an attorney at Cravath, Swain, and more, one of the premier U.S. law firms for the last two centuries. Welcome, Sheila Warren. Welcome, Sheila Warren. <laughs> Thanks, Cams. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, Sheila, you've, you've accomplished so much, and we're going to get into your journey. But first, what gets you up in the morning? Oh my goodness. I mean, I I really remain an optimist. And maybe that is a crazy thing to be in the times that we're in right now. It probably is. There's certainly a lot of evidence, you know, that that is a hard position to justify. But I really do believe that if we put our minds to it, if we think strategically, if we work together, uh, we can build a better world. Uh, maybe not in time for people like me and my generation, but certainly for generations to follow. And I find that deeply, deeply motivating. I mean, what more could I be trying to dedicate my life towards doing? That's beautiful. I feel the same, that we can just find joy in everything that we do in our life, in our daily lives, whether it's getting our favorite toothbrush or <laughs> spending a little, <laughs> little more moments, favorite, like little things like that, yeah. um, we can find joy in. <laughs> we are so curious. How did you get to be the CEO of the Crypto Council for Innovation? What was your journey? How did you get there? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think that probably the most important thing to note about anybody, I think, in Web3 at this point who's over the age of you know 35 is we all had a very weird journey to get here. You know, So when I graduated from Harvard Law, there was no blockchain. There was no crypto. That was not a thing. There was definitely tech. The tech industry had been through one kind of crash in the early in early 2000, but was still still becoming like a place. I mean, Google had just gotten founded, you know, things like this. So for me, I think it was just a, a career that was spent observing some of the problems with centralized structures and infrastructure, whether that was in banking and finance, whether it was in philanthropy, whether it was in tech or Web2, as we now call it. I had just seen how a lot of those models led to exploitation, exploitation of labor, exploitation of, of other kinds of human capital, exploitation of users uh, and participants in those systems. And so when I learned first about blockchain technology and its decentralization, disintermediation ethos, that was really appealing to me, having been on the other side of many different industries. Wow, you touched on so many different things there. 
I want to jump to one of my questions and we're going to circle back to your journey, but what is DeFi, decentralized finance? You mentioned central, like that the economy, how we work with money is very centralized. What is decentralized finance or DeFi and how does it work? So I really think that DeFi, first of all, is is really the only way that we are ever going to realize an equitable and inclusive financial ecosystem. I, I truly believe that. I think there's a lot of benefits to centralized finance, as we call it, and to kind of hybrid interfaces. I think there is merit to that. I think the system that we currently have uh, is better than it used to be. There's been a lot of progress. But until we are not empowering centralized gatekeepers to determine everything from who gets a loan, who gets a bank account, who gets a mortgage, how can you make a payment? What is the right, what is the consequence of making that payment, right? What do you have to share about yourself to make a payment? Until we kind of mitigate some of that, I think we're always going to have a system that's got haves and have-nots. So without getting into the technology of what DeFi is, because that is something I highly recommend people investigate if they're so inclined. It's extremely interesting. And I'm definitely not a technical expert in you know coding DeFi infrastructure. Nevertheless, what the promise and potential of it is, is basically to say you can engage in an exchange of value directly with another individual or entity or whatever without having to go through a centralized intermediary. So here's kind of an example, right, of how I think about it. And this is kind of true for blockchain in general and for cryptocurrencies in general as a general matter, but it's even more true in the DeFi ecosystem. So right now, if you and I, you know, if I were to say, oh, hey, I want to send you something or some money, whatever, you know, how would I do that? We'd go probably to our mobile devices and we'd use an app that we chose. Maybe it's Cash App, maybe it's Venmo, whatever it is. And I would say, oh, hey, I want to send you 20 bucks for buying me a drink last week. I really appreciate it, whatever. And we would just agree. We'd, I'd send that to you and we'd, we'd walk away. The reason we can walk away from that transaction without really, you know, paying too much attention is because we know that my bank is talking to the intermediary to Venmo or PayPal or Cash App or whatever it is, is talking to your bank. They're debiting the right amount from my account and crediting it to your account, right? And it's done. Imagine that we're paying fees for that. Someone, there's fees at some point in the way that someone is paying for that. And in fact, a big part of like, do we use PayPal or not or whatever is like, how do we structure the transaction? Are there fees attached, et cetera, right? Imagine if instead we could eliminate all of those intermediary players and I could just the equivalent of my handing you a $20 bill. There's no carve out from that. There's nothing else happening, right? I could just give it to you. You can do that online digitally. Another example I use that people kind of, it resonates with people a little bit more is think about if we were to go to a restaurant and every time we sat down, what we were allowed to order or what we could actually see, the menu we would see would be contextualized and different every time based on who we were. Right. Imagine if that were the case. And so you'd have like a server or a restaurant that could determine literally what you got to eat at a restaurant based on who you were. That's what's happening on social media platforms right now. The algorithm tees up to you things it thinks are going to cause you to spend more time on the platform. Right. There's no freedom of information in the way that we think is the case. But imagine if instead we could share content more freely and I could share something directly with you. And, and if I rather than my putting it on Twitter and hoping it, it comes up in your algorithm, I just send it to you. I do that now, right? But on the platform, you may or may not see it. So the more direct our interactions are, the more pure those interactions are and not mitigated or intermediated by some other party that does, is not looking out for you or me, is looking out for itself or themselves, the purer I think our interactions are going to be. And the hope is that that way we can build a society around those principles and those inclusive values. 
That was an incredible breakdown. And I'm sure the listeners who are listening to this podcast will share that it was for them as well. I wonder, what are your thoughts on, it sounds like there's just so many benefits for people who are historically marginalized in money in general. You mentioned that the algorithm serves us what they think it wants us to see. And heard in one of our talks that, for example, when a woman logged on to her email, there was ads about, spend your money on this great vacation. But when there was, when a man logged in, it was, hey, you can invest all your money in this and you'll make more money this way. They're trying to grow men's money while they're trying to make women spend. What are your thoughts on how we can effectively onboard more women, um, Black, Indigenous, people of color, and other historically marginalized groups into the Web3 space? Yeah, well, the great news is that when you look at ownership of digital wallets, it actually is historically excluded communities, Black, Latino communities, Indigenous communities who are really walking to this technology. And part of that, I think, is the historical exclusion, right? The fact that systematically a lot of financial services have excluded people. All this language is so fascinating, right? Because there's this concept of the unbanked. And the unbanked is a person without a bank account, definitionally. But just because you have a bank account doesn't mean you're being treated fairly or that system's working for you. So I remember being a 19, 20-year-old barely clinging to a bank account, right? Paying these crazy fees, always worrying about overdraft, whatever it was, right? And then I remember being me where I am now, where it's not that big of a deal, you know? Now, a lot of that, to be fair, has evolved in the time between when I was 20 and, you know, what I am now, which is not 20. So now we don't have those same kinds of fees. And when that fee structure, there's that minimum balances is not really a thing that we had when I was, you know, coming up. Nevertheless, you're not the priority customer if you are poor. Let's just be real. That's not what's happening, right? The people who are priority customers are the ones who are putting a ton of money into that institution because that money is being leveraged. And let me tell you again, not that I'm one of those people, but I'm, I'm wealthy enough that I know what it feels like to be a customer that is taken seriously. And that is a difference. So when we talk about like unbanked or underbanked, I hate those terms. I use the terms historically excluded because to me, that is indicative of the systematic historical progress. Just because 20 years on, there's not minimum fees in banking doesn't mean that the legacy of the minimum fee requirement has not impacted some communities more than others over time, because of course it has. The reason you have generational wealth in certain communities and not others is because, in, in large part, because of access to any ability to save or invest in any way, right? And so that's a really important thing to understand. There's a whole bunch of other history of atrocities, of exclusion, of slavery, everything in this country that we can kind of like root all the way back into. But in the more recent times, this kind of exclusion has been historic, has been very, very, very impactful and powerful in creating these these kinds of things. The good news, again, is that a lot of these communities are now turning to crypto and turning to Web3 as a way of saying, I don't need to work with you know a bank, for example, right? I have another option of how to exchange my money, of how to save my money, of how to invest my money, of how to do other things with my money that are more within my control and I can be empowered. Now, I think we have to be very, very careful about this because just because someone can do something doesn't mean that they are necessarily doing the safe thing. And so one of the things that I spend a lot of time on is thinking about what does consumer protection look like and what does it mean in this new system we're building? Because I think we need to, and I say this and not everyone likes it, I say this so loudly, but I say there are scams and fraud in this space. We have to just own that. I don't want to see that. Nobody who is a good actor wants to see scams and fraud, right? But they pop up all over the place. And so how do we create enough of an education frame, an empowerment frame around consumers and users 
so that they can make, maybe it's not apples to apples comparison, but at least it's a fruit to fruit comparison versus, you know, not having a clue. And just because some celebrity says a thing is great, that people are putting money into it and then they're losing money. So we have to guard against predatory inclusion. We have to guard against being too paternalistic and cutting off options and avenues for people just because they don't have a ton of money. They're not pre-wealthy, as I call it. But at the same time, we have to be very mindful of the fact that we don't want to put too much of the burden on consumers to do all the education themselves. There's got to be some kind of standard or other thing that is being observed at a minimum, right? By whether it's the government, whether it's what's called a self-regulatory organization, whether it's whatever it is, there's got to be some way of indicating this investment is a vetted, tires kicked, here's what the risk actually is versus this other thing is truly the Wild West. No one knows what the heck this thing is, buyer beware, right? And we don't have that right now. We really don't have that yet in this ecosystem. So a concern is that just because a lot of folks of color and poorer folks and folks in rural areas and folks in emerging economies, et cetera, are, are getting into this stuff doesn't necessarily mean it's serving them. So we'd be very careful about what these statistics show. That being said, the traction and pickup is high. And so as this ecosystem gets more and more robust, as it gets safer and safer, I feel optimistic and positive about the trends because I feel like we're only going to make this space more secure and more safe for folks. And that means that if you're already in it, you're going to be kind of in, in a good position to take advantage of those opportunities. Join me at Coindesk Consensus 2023, where Web3 meets IRL, happening April 26th through 28th in Austin, Texas. Consensus is the industry's only event bringing together all sides of crypto, Web3, and the metaverse. Immerse yourself in all that blockchain technology has to offer among creators, builders, founders, brands, entrepreneurs, investors, and more. Use code WEB3WOMEN to get 15% off your pass. Visit events.coindesk.com slash consensus2023. You're listening to the Women Who Web 3 podcast by Coindesk. I'm your host, Kams, and we are talking with Sheila Warren, CEO of the Crypto Council for Innovation and co-host of the Coindesk podcast, Money Reimagined. Uh, Sheila, speaking of investments and what you mentioned about historically excluded communities. So we're seeing high adoption, we're seeing traction, but now that people are there, they need some sort of corralling. I don't know if it's corralling. They need some sort of education. They need something to help them get on the right track. So I'm wondering, what does the Crypto Council for Innovation do? And how can others contribute to helping our communities in crypto flourish at the individual and community level? Uh, that's a great question. So what CCI does is we are an evidence-based advocacy organization. So we work in multiple jurisdictions around the world. We work a lot in Washington, D.C. We work in London and Brussels and Singapore and California and New York. And we're working hard to make sure that there is responsible regulation. Uh, what does that mean? It means that we need to make sure regulations based on what's actually happening, not what's being hyped. But we need to also make sure that we're not giving into what we call in this space FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt because the hype goes both ways. There's definitely hyping about this technology is the best thing ever and a technology of hype about this is the worst thing possible and it must be, you know, killed. And neither of those things it makes any sense first of all or is true. So we take web3 and crypto as inevitable. That's one of our predicates is you can't fight this thing or should you want to. What we can do is make sure that it is guided and structured in a way that forces it if if need be to be inclusive and equitable. And that's a really really important thing I think for 
in everybody, certainly that works with me and for our members. At the same time, we want to make sure we're preserving the innovation space. So the reality is that this is a new space and there are going to be a lot of exciting things that come out of this space that we can't even imagine. Literally, the person maybe has been born yet who, who can even imagine what that's going to look like, right? When the internet was still in its early days, nobody could imagine a Google or a Spotify and say what you will about those innovations being you know, good and bad. The reality is they have recast our entire society and created tremendous change. And so we are poised to have that kind of impact on society. So how do we make sure that we are not cutting off the paths to innovation or being very careful to preserve that? Now, what I think people can do, we started something, Trisha Wong and I co-founded something called the, the Crypto Research and Design Lab, Cradle. And that's focused on tech ethnography and working with communities. Uh, again, communities of color, you know, poor communities, communities who have been historically excluded in some fashion and saying, what is it you actually need? Like, what's going to help you, right? When it comes to financial services, are things working okay for you? Is this an issue? Or is it just touted as an issue by some? On the other hand, we're here to say, look, what kinds of innovations in the creator economy are going to be useful? How do you think about your data? And so what Trisha and her team have created is basically a series of design protocols to say, this is how you, in your design process, go about effectively consulting with communities, engaging them in your build. But also, here are just some questions you need to ask in your sprints to figure out like what are the things we need to be doing to check and make sure we are being as inclusive as we want to be, as we can be. So there are a lot of different ways, I think, of getting engaged, but the, the least of which is getting a wallet, playing around with it, figuring out how it works, and providing ticket feedback. As simple as that in some ways, right? It's just kind of like getting engaged in a DAO, joining a community, you know, weighing in on proposals, things like this. I think all these kinds of things are ways of getting involved because there is literally no barrier to entry to the crypto economy. The only barrier is the amount of time you're willing to put it in some cases and you have, which of course is you know a big thing, but also the amount of, in a lot of cases, the investment is not a lot of money. So there are a lot of ways in getting engaged. The one thing I would suggest is not necessarily productive in, in the way people think it is, is it just engaging on Twitter. If you're only engaging on Twitter uh, with people, that is not actually necessarily having the impact I think people might think it is. It's really important to get on Discord, to get into you know, some of these communities, to show up, right? To make sure that we show up. And there are a lot of women-friendly, LGBTQ-friendly, you know, um, all kinds of, of community of color-friendly DAOs out there focused specifically on these communities and on how we can come together and collaborate to create a better system. I love it. <laughs> I'm in those Discords and I see what people are talking about. And I know a lot of them would disagree with that. There's, there's the barriers to entry are actually lower than we think. And I think that's caused by how we talk about it on Twitter. It seems yeah. so hard, but really, and I think that's that optimist that lives in both of us, um, <laughs> that it's not actually super hard. You can engage in so many different ways. And as a user experience researcher in my full-time work in the Web3 space at a blockchain yeah. infrastructure company, I can appreciate that you mentioned the sprints and making sure that we're and they're understanding the user's pain points and needs and we're building at every level of the product design process from end to end of the life cycle of creating something. What does it look like to create a wallet? What prompts and what educational factors need to pull up when we're typing in like how to do our seed phrase? How can we talk to the user and communicate with them in a way that we're educating them along their journey to creating an, an, a wallet or adopting crypto or or engaging with any dApps, there's certainly a lot of things we can do as builders to ensure that we're educating along the way. And that, as you mentioned, we're not going into it with predatory onboarding. 
love all of those things you've brought up. And I wish we, we had more time to flesh them all out. <laughs> Well, you know, um, I think it is important, right, for us to acknowledge also, Cam's, that, yes. you know, we are predicated on basics like internet access, like basic digital literacy and numeracy, like things like this, which we shouldn't take for granted, right? So I think that we and your audience are speaking to folks that are already beyond those hurdles, but they are huge barriers. And so when it comes to thinking about financial inclusion as a, as a specific thing, or even as into data inclusion in the global data economy, we have to be very thoughtful about the fact that anything that's predicated on those kinds of infrastructure premises, right, which crypto can't solve, we can't go out there and build technology if people don't have access to get online in any fashion. It's just, it's just, we, that's not a problem. We, we can advocate for that problem to be solved. And we do a lot of work on rural broadband and other things that a lot of people in the crypto economy and crypto don't pay attention to, but we're like, these are critical things that we should be supporting in legislation as well and policy as well, because the more we address digital divide as it's historically called issues, the more opportunities we're going to have. That being said, I do think if you're a person that is used to an online environment, if you're digitally native as a general matter, I think that the onboarding into becoming a crypto native person, to your point, is really not, the barrier to entry is actually quite low. It's more a matter of like feeling a little intimidated or nervous because you don't know. But I will say I have found, you got to pick your Discord because there are some toxic, successful Discords out there for sure. But they're pretty easy to avoid at this point. If you pick the right Discord, and it's not, again, there's many, many options, it's such a welcoming community. And people are really excited to share and talk to you and, you know, educate you. And I, there's things I'm learning about. And I've been in crypto full time now for almost seven years, but I'm learning things all the time because the cutting edge of the technology is outpacing my ability to keep up with it. So I get taught things, you know, in Discord all the time. So I really would say getting that experience and putting your hands in, there's no substitute for that. And that's true in life in general. While you were talking, I was just thinking about the communities that we're building and how we're onboarding them and what that looks like. In your opinion, with all of the experience you have in the crypto space, what traits of a community promote the sort of Web3 space with equity and inclusion in a way that you would think would promote the most equitable Web3 space? Yeah, that's a great question. Ironically, you know, you'd think that I would say the flatter the hierarchy, the better. I actually think it takes really, really thoughtful curation and moderation. I think that's extremely important, extremely important because things can go off the rails quickly uh, in any online environment or people are, uh, you know, they're operating pseudonymously in, in most cases, you know, things can really go off the rails. And so I actually think having a thought through, you know, curation, moderation kind of plan is really, really important. And having that accountability sit with a group is really important. And I mean, who among us has not been part of a, a group on some social media platform that like just turned totally toxic? You know, it's just, it's just a, it just happens. It's not great. I also think that rewarding curiosity is really important. So, so we have a frame at, at, at every place, at every team I've ever built, where I kind of say like, I, I want to be a culture that rewards curiosity, which means there are no stupid questions, which means you pause to help somebody who's asking a question on something, right? Like you don't, we don't, we don't get to be impatient about that. We can say that's not the time. You know, we're, we're two heads down for this, whatever. But we pause to have those conversations when we can't, when we have the time, because the idea is that by educating each other, we're creating a more robust community. And that's true at a team level. It's true at a company level. It's true, you know, in a Discord chat or whatever it is, wherever it is, in a DAO, like all of that matters. So those are things I, I would say when you put those two things together and you have a kind of a, a culture of rewarding curiosity and you have pretty straight up, you know, revealed 
disclosed policies around what is tolerated and not tolerated, like moderation. So people feel safe. I think that's really important. I don't mean safe and kind of like the everything you say needs to be, you know, non-controversial by any stretch of imagination. But I do think there needs to be some bounds of, of certain kinds of discourse that are not permitted. And I think that a lot of those things, they're less around like harassment type of things. I'd like to think that communities we create are going to have zero tolerance for that as a default. It's really more around impatience for new learners, because as communities get bigger and bigger, it's harder and harder to onboard new people because there is a core group that's kind of been there from the beginning. And sometimes they forget that not everyone there understands, you know, how the community operates and functions. That's incredible. And what you mentioned echoes a lot of what I'm seeing in communities that I'm heavily involved in. I'm in a lot of communities, big, small um, women-led communities. I've been in the degen communities where people are just typing in all caps. And I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted, to, yeah, wanted to reiterate that beautiful, rewarding curiosity, and it really supports that culture of empathy and understanding and helping others and bringing each other up in the community that I think a lot of women naturally do and want to to continue doing in those in those yeah. spaces. Bringing it back all the way to the beginning, where we talked a little <laughs> bit more about you. And women, I'm sure a lot of women are curious, like, what is it like to be a CEO, especially in the crypto slash Web3 space? And for women who want to be a CEO, how do they level up? Yeah. So again, I have to say my my career has been just a weird journey. I started off as a lawyer at a law firm, and then I shifted out to working at a very boutique firm. I left law altogether to build product. So I got product experience which serves me every single day. Like I understand design sprints because I had to deal with them. I had to like get the engineers to talk to the designers. That was not easy. I had to think about UX all the time, right? So um, that was a critically important experience. And then I moved out of that. I became a lawyer again. I was GC at a big tech social enterprise. We worked in you know 200 countries. So thinking about uh, bringing a global frame to a lot of what I was doing. Funnily enough, to stay on theme, I think that, that the way I got where I am is I just I followed my curiosity. And I had the, the luxury of doing that because I made big changes at times. The economy was strong. And I'm lucky that you know I was able to kind of skirt through some of the times the economy was very weak and just stick in a job that maybe I didn't love, but I was employed. So there's things like that that I think are realities that are, are different for folks coming up now. Those, those cycles are a lot, a lot shorter than they used to be, let me tell you. But I do think that uh, I, every time there was something I was curious about, I found a way. It didn't always happen right away, but I found a way to figure out how to engage with it. So I got really curious about giving money away across borders, and I became an expert in that. I got really curious about what building product would look like, and I you know, did that. I was really curious to think about what being in-house as a lawyer would look like and how to think about risk and compliance and, and strategy. And, and I grew to be an executive at a company. Then I got to found the blockchain. I got curious about blockchain. And I was weirdly like I was in the right place at the right time to some extent. The World Economic Forum hired me to found their team. So I got to learn a ton about that, right? And then I was like, well, I think the best, highest impact use of my time is going to be landing responsible policy and regulation in this space. And so then, you know, I, I was able to find a position. Let me do that. It is my first time being a CEO. I built teams multiple places, multiple times. Uh, being a CEO is different. I'm learning every day. I'm learning how to be a CEO, you know, and I think there's a humility you have to have with every different role and understanding what you know and don't know. But certain things I think are skills that have taken me from place to place. So I guess what I would say is every time you get a, a chance, whether it's temporary or otherwise, to expand your knowledge base and your skill set in an area you're curious about, think about if you can take it. When I was at TechSoup, 
our head of marketing went on maternity leave. And so I asked if I could just manage that team for the time for the four or five months she was out and help with that. And I was able to, by doing so, I I wanted to give an opportunity to a woman on another team of mine who I was like, as long as I'm in this job, she's not going to get to do certain things and I want to grow her. So I was able to give some things over to her and give her a chance to grow herself. And then I was also able to learn a lot about marketing and branding and communications and get really deep in that stuff. And it was, I didn't ever have that title, but it was a chance to really learn about that. And I was trusted as an executive. So I was able to, my job was to manage the team, which is actually, you know, for that period of time, if you're a good manager, that's something you can do. I would also say, you know, don't underestimate uh, just the sheer soft skill, the critical importance of softer skills. Like you can be the most brilliant lawyer or coder or whatever, but if you can't manage, you know, down, over and up, it's going to be really tough for you to progress in your career. And that's true regardless of how decentralized structures get. You got to be able to work with other people. And if you have challenges with that when you're young in your career, it's not going to get easier. So really think about that and think about prioritizing, figuring out, you know, how do you make your points known? How do you choose your battles? How do you know when to dig in? You know, and and how do you be mindful of what the culture that you're operating within is? And if that culture is not something, a place that you're going to thrive, then start making your plan. Figure out what you can extract from that place, that place of employment or that team and start making a plan to get out of there. That's incredible. And I love how you chat about the CEO. And I feel like that should be the ending question. But a national poll by the Crypto Council for Innovation in October 2022 revealed that 52 percent of the 1,200 U.S. voters surveyed say they would like more regulation on crypto markets. And you talked a little bit about regulation, what that looks like, but what does this mean for the future of decentralization? Yeah, I think that's a great question. What was fascinating about that poll, and we tweeted a a whole thread about it, and it was picked up on on Squawk Box and CNBC, and they did a a really good job of of articulating what the findings were. Um, First of all, it's evenly split Democrat-Republican, which is fascinating. I think crypto might be one of the only possibly truly bipartisan or nonpartisan issues in the United States, which is fascinating. I'll just leave it at fascinating. It's very, very interesting. Uh, We also surveyed likely voters. So we didn't look at adoption rates more generally. We looked at people that are voting. So our numbers are one in seven is lower than other things you'll see. There's like a one in 14. Someone found one in 20. I'm not going to question those numbers. I think the adoption is a lot higher, but we look at likely voters. And so that was an important distinction of our poll. So that's why that number is a bit different than some other numbers. That being said, I think that people want to know that what they're investing in is not a scam or a fraud. They want to know that it's going to stick around in the United States. And they want to know that what they're investing in or what they're what they're using, depending on the frame that they're that they're choosing, what they're using and getting engaging with is not going to just be pulled out from under them by the U.S. government coming in and creating some regulation that's going to make it you know, very complicated. I don't think it'll ever be illegal, but will make it really complicated to engage with this technology. And that's not what anybody wants to see. So I do think that what that poll indicates to us and certainly how it's being perceived in Washington is that this is a really, it's an important thing to a lot of people. Those people are spread across the parties, are spread across the country. The geography of this is pretty, it's not just like the big city coast, you know, tech centers. It's like a lot of folks all over the country are using this uh, technology and these opportunities. And so we really have to be thoughtful about making sure that what we're doing is serving them, like serving these constituents, literal constituents, literal, you know, voters in this case. And what do we need to do about that? So we were frankly a little surprised by how, by the results. We, we didn't think it'd be quite as powerful as it was to be very, just speaking very frankly. We knew it was an important poll to do and to do really rigorously. We hadn't really seen a lot of rigorous polling that had been done to the level of quality we wanted to see. 
I can tell you these results are really robust. So I think it it carves a path forward to make folks, policymakers and regulators understand even more than they already do, that this is the future. Like this technology, this opportunity is the future. It's not going anywhere. You're only get, those numbers are only going to get, you know, higher and higher, or I guess lower and lower, one and three. I don't know how you, more and more people are going to start engaging with this. More and more voters are going to start engaging with this too. And as demographics shift, we'll see that, I think, really start to hockey stick. So that's part of our job is to make those connections, to indicate that, you know, this is real. It's a real constituency. It's a real opportunity. It does have challenges, but we'd be remiss here in the United States, but in any country, if we didn't take it extremely seriously. Thank you, Sheila. That was some phenomenal information, especially for helping us understand how robust and representative this survey is, which tells us, you know, this we can truly believe in these stats. And speaking of fear, uncertainty, and doubt, I feel like that squashes a lot of it for me. <laughs> Thank you so much. Bye. This week's meditation is a mindfulness exercise that you can use whenever you need a mental break. Together, let's take one deep breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. Good. Wherever you are, take this moment to connect to your breath and to focus on relaxation. Settle into a comfortable seated position Head and neck align over the spine, arms relaxed and hands rest in your lap. When you're ready, you can close the eyes or gaze softly in front of you. Take a moment to scan the body slowly from your head down to your toes to check for any areas that are tensed. Relax the jaw, the shoulders, the belly, and use the breath in and out to relax and allow the hips to sink heavier into the area beneath you. As you inhale through your nose, become aware of the small space above your lip where the air flows into your body. Follow the breath in and down towards every region of your body with each inhale and exhale even slower than the inhale. Good. To allow yourself a quick break, we're going to breathe in for four counts and exhale for seven counts. This can help stop the fight or flight response when you're just feeling so overwhelmed. We're going to inhale for four. So inhale, two, three, four. Exhale, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Good. I'll count one more time with you. Inhale, two, three, four. Exhale, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Good. Continue breathing just like that on your own for the next minute. If your mind wanders, it's okay. Just go back to counting your inhales and exhales. Nice. That was some great breathing. (laughs) When it seems like everything is piling up, your mind is racing, and you feel like you can't possibly take a minute to rest, that is the best time to take a break for yourself. And I hope that you do. 
You deserve as many breaks as you need to be your best self. Thank you for meditating with me. And I hope you have a wonderful week. Take your time getting up. I want to thank you all for listening to Women Who Web 3. You can find us on the Coindesk Podcast Network or anywhere you listen to podcasts. I'm your host, Kams. Thank you for taking that step in changing the world together and helping us push forward the adoption of crypto. Till next week, remember, always look to the sky above, earth below, and fire within. You've been listening to Women Who Web 3 with host Kamala Ancantera. This show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is 20-something by Danielle Musto. Cams would love to hear from you. You can reach out to her at cams, K-A-M-Z, at womenwhoweb3.com or podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, Women Who Web 3. Thanks for listening.